Numbers 24 in our text will be verses 15 through 19. Would you stand with me now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? Numbers 24, beginning at verse 15. He took up his discourse and he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all of the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession, Seir, its enemies also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion, and will destroy the remnant from the city." The great and powerful preacher from a couple of centuries ago began his sermon on this text by saying, Jesus is here sweetly preached, but from a heart which never loved Him, and by lips which shall never praise Him. Just think of the horror of this absurdity to preach Christ sweetly without love for him. That's what uh, captures what is so captivating about our text here, the words of our text, uh, given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, set forth a sweeping and glorious vision of Jesus Christ, and yet all of it comes from the mouth of a pagan. Truth was etched upon Balaam's mind, but it never gripped his heart. He received the light of the truth, but not the love of it. And yet in spite of all of that, this pagan man was led to speak in the most exalted terms about Christ. And as I thought about that, I couldn't help but see a parallel to our season where the world around us celebrates Christmas and speaks sweetly about Jesus and of his birth and puts on pageants and plays and sings songs about it, well, it puts no faith in him whatsoever. And so I got to thinking while the world is celebrating, let's use this as occasion this morning as we turn to the Word of God to renew our faith in Christ by looking unto him as he is cloaked in his kingly and saving glory as he is set forth for us here by way of prophecy in Numbers 24, 17. So I'm going to call this message a vision of Christ. And we'll break down our text into two parts. A marvelous vision and a messianic vision. And it's a marvelous vision. That's one of the things that we will be captivated by as we work our way through the text. It's a marvelous vision. And one of the things that we think about when we look at this vision is it's divinely given. It's unmistakable. It's stamped thoroughly and impressively and pervasively throughout the text. And first of all, we can say it is a vision. He says, I see him, but not now. And that verb there, see, means to use your eyeballs to fix upon a target. It's as simple as that. It's not a fancy term, but the idea of the word stresses upon us that whatever is disclosed here is the object of real sight. And that's reinforced again in the next clause as he says, I behold him, but not near. So both verbs reinforce the visual aspect of this uh, particular oracle which is before us. It's not merely visionary. It is a real vision and portrait of Christ. But here's the thing. It's divinely given. And uh, one of the things, I suppose, which is necessary is to impress upon the people of God when such a sweeping and striking vision of Christ is set forth for the church to the mouth of a pagan, we ought to be impressed with the fact that he's not the source of it. And so here in our text, it's as if the Holy Spirit leads Balaam to spew a flurry of terms which underscore and highlight the fact 
that what we read here is from above. And we begin to see that already in the introduction of our text in verse 15. He took up his discourse. And, and you know, the word there is mashal. It is mashal. And a mashal is a prophetic utterance given in poetic form. It's a prophetic utterance in poetic form. And that's just reinforced now as he heaps up the term because in the next two clauses in verse 15, we see this term oracle. An oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. And you see, the repetition of the term reinforces the nature of the vision here. It is an oracle. It is a prophetic discourse. But the image that is used now at the end of verse 15 is even more illuminating as he says it's the oracle of a man whose eye has been opened. It's as if the inner workings of the eyeball have been peeled back by the sovereignty of the Spirit of God. And he is able through the portal and the gate of the window to see and to fix his sight upon a high-resolution picture of the future. All of that is reinforced as you come into verse 16. The oracle, the same word for prophetic pronouncement, and this time it is of one who hears the words of God. It's as if uh, he says here that the Lord has whispered right into his ears. Skip that clause and you go into the third one and you see another term for revelation who sees the vision of the Almighty. Again, we have a doubling up of terms here because the word see means to receive prophecy and the word vision means a rational communication from God. So we have two terms back to back reinforcing not just the visionary nature of this oracle, but the divine nature of it, that this is from the Lord. And then notice even further, we're told here that his eye has been uncovered. And it's, uh, the verb is in the passive form, which, which means that it's something that's happened to him, that it's not something he's participating in or initiating, it's something that's come upon him. But God has caused him to receive this uncovering of his eye, and all of it then is described in this simple uh, summary term for the whole of the revelation, right at the heart of verse 16, where he says, he knows the knowledge of the Most High. He knows the knowledge of the Most High. And so Balaam declares that he has received this propositional revelation from God. And it's important for us to keep bearing that in mind and noticing the piling up of terms for revelation so that we grasp what is unmistakable here, whatever it is that you are about to learn about Christ. It doesn't come from a pagan. It comes from the spirit of the living God. And so that's the first part of what makes this marvelous. Is It's clear to us that this vision comes from the spirit. It comes from inspiration. But notice also what's marvelous about this vision. It is personal. And you can see that in verse 17. I see him. I see him. He doesn't say he sees things or people or objects or, or benefits or, or blessings in the abstract. What he says is that he fixes upon his sight, fixes upon an individual a man. You see the same thing in the next clause. I behold him. It's personal. But what's so interesting about this statement is that he two times in a row reinforces the fact that what he sees is far distant on the plane of human history as he says, I see him, but not now. And that idea of now means that the object is simultaneous to the communication. But because he says not now, he's making it very clear that this person that he sees isn't simultaneous with him now. He's not there. He's not standing in front of him. He even says that in the next clause. I behold him, but not near. He is not 
close in time. So what he does here is 1,500 years before Jesus Christ was born into this world in a manger in Bethlehem is say to the people of God by way of blessing that he sees him. The language reminds us of what Jesus says, but it's more astonishing. Jesus says of Abraham that he saw his day and rejoiced. 2,000 years before the coming of Christ, Abraham testifies of Abraham that he saw him and his day, but he rejoiced in it. But you see, what's more astonishing about this is we can say that what Christ was speaking of was a faith perspective. And what Balaam is saying here is a sight perspective. He sees him standing on a hillside somewhere above the plains of Moab with a vast horde of the people of God scattered in the valley below. He comes and he proclaims what he sees a thousand more years into the future. And he fixes the sight of Israel upon its great hope, which is Christ. That's the second thing that makes this vision a marvelous vision. It's clearly and distinctly inspired by the Spirit of God and from above. And second of all, it's a very clear vision of Christ 1,500 years in advance. But the third element that makes it such a marvelous vision is it's so unlikely. We can settle here for just a little bit longer than we did the prior two subpoints because it's so interesting. It's so unlikely. And what makes this vision so unlikely, first of all, is the people. The people whom it is designed to speak to. It's designed to speak to Israel. It's designed to speak to a people as we saw Last week in our exposition of Psalm 78, we're notorious for being a generation of a stubborn and rebellious mood. If you've spent any time in the book of Numbers, one thing that you will be persuaded of about this book is it's a, it's a book about rebellion. It is a book about rebellion. You go back to chapter 11 and you see the rebellion of the people of God who are murmuring as they were so often wont to do in the midst of the wilderness because they were tired of this thing called manna. And they remembered the glory days of being in Egypt where they sat around the cooking pots and ate leeks and garlic and melon and onions. And now God has brought them out into this parched wilderness and all they get to eat now is this coriander like seed bread that falls miraculously from the heavens and they just want to sink their teeth into some meat you go on into chapter 12 and you read about the rebellion of of Aaron and Miriam who rose up against their brother Moses you read into chapter 13 and 14 and you read about the grand and spectacular failure and rebellion of the people of God at Kedesh Barnea which was in the southern part of the land of Canaan. And there God sent 12, or rather Moses sent 12 spies out of the land to spy out the land to prepare for invasion. And they brought their report back and they gave the most glowing testimony about the nature of the land, that it was a land flowing with milk and honey and full of natural beauty and vitality. There's just a problem. There were giants in the land. And the people wailed and mourned before the Lord and were faithless and rebelled against the call to take the land in faith with the hand of the Lord with them. And so for 40 long years, God required that generation to stumble and fall and die in the wilderness. Think about that. That's the generation now that you're seeing here, the recipient of this vision is the generation of people who grow up reading the obituaries every day and noticing that their aunts and their uncles and their cousins and their family and their friends were all dead. A stubborn, rebellious generation. Move on to number 16. You read about the rebellion of Korah and the whole congregation against Moses and Aaron. Then finally you get into Numbers 20 and you read about the rebellion of Moses. Finally, Moses is touched by all this rebellion and he's incited to it by the disobedience and the sin of the people of God who are demanding 
water from the rock. And so he stood before all of them in the plain view of the Lord, it says, and he struck the rock twice, which was against the command of God. And so Moses rebelled. So you have rebellion uh, in the past. And if you look on the other side of our text, perhaps even if your Bible is open, you can see our text is bracketed by, by rebellion because the headline of chapter 25 in your Bible probably reads like mine, Sin at Peor. You see, as they were stationed here on the plains of Moab around the Moabites, if you read on to chapter 25, you can see here that the sons of Israel fell into gross idolatry in the plains of Moab by playing the harlot with the daughters of Moab and sacrificing to their false god and joining themselves to Baal Peor. So it's as if no sooner do they receive this grand and sweeping vision of messianic blessing in Jesus Christ that they rise up to worship a false god and join themselves to prostitutes. You see, what makes this so unlikely is the people. What makes this blessing proclaimed uh, from the mouth of this pagan man is that the people of God were stubborn, rebellious, and so undeserving of hearing this word of blessing. Then there's a second element to this unlikely nature. It's in view of proposed persecution. Look back in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. In Numbers 22, where you see the proposed persecution where Balak uh, says to Balaam through messengers, now therefore please come curse this people from me since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. You see, he wants uh, Balaam, this pagan man who utters the very prophecy that we're examining here this morning to curse the people of God. You say, why in the world would he want him to do that? And the answer is because of what he saw. Look back at verse 2. We read here that um, in verse 2, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. You see, it's because of what he saw. The people of God had been marching with military conquest, one after the other, Sihon, king of the Abbots, and Og, king of Bashan, and they had these massive military victories, and now they have parked right on the plains of Moab, right on the porch or doorstep, if you will, of Balak, king of Moab, and he saw the power and the might of the people of God and the conquest of their enemies, and well, we see here the result. He was full of dread, and he was full of fear, because they were numerous. He was terrorized. And so he calls upon this man to bring curse upon the people of God so that he might defeat them. And so that's the second thing which makes this vision so unlikely because it emerges from the circumstances of the context which are entirely opposite of the receipt of blessing. He called for their persecution in the form of curse. And that brings us to the third element, which makes this so unlikely in this prophecy all the more marvelous, the prophet. I think we can call him a prophet, even though I think we should use air quotes. Prophet. But um, there's something about him that, well, made him renowned. You can see that for yourself in the last part of verse 6. This is Balak's word to Balaam. For I know he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. You see, all the way down in the plains of Moab, hundreds of miles away from where Balaam, son of Beor, lived, he'd heard about the fame of this man Balaam, who could call curse down from heaven. And he was a success of it. We have a, a tablet which is uncovered from the ancient world from this era. And it tells us something of what curse meant and likely meant here. The text reads, May the great gods of heaven and the netherworld curse him, his descendants, his land, his soldiers, his people, and his army. 
You see, a curse meant to bring down dreadful and destructive harm upon somebody or some entity or some nation or some people. That's what Balaam was in the business of. And so, if we were to read on into chapter 22, you could read about a couple of different delegations uh, from Balak that came to Balaam. And I'll just give you the thumbnail sketch here quickly so we can move on with our text and get to the heart of it. But the very first delegation comes and lays out the plan before uh, Balaam from Balak to curse the people of God. And, and wouldn't you know what? This, this holy man, Balaam, having heard of the plan, says something really pious. He, he says, well, let me go have a word with the Lord tonight and I'll get back to you in the morning. So it sounds right. I mean, after all, he's a, he's a holy man. He's, he's known to be a, a spiritual guru and he does exactly what you would expect from somebody who's spiritually attuned. He, he wouldn't want to take a step without the permission of the Lord. And so he goes and he hears a word from the Lord and here's what God said to him. Don't go to them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. God's word to Balaam is as straight as an arrow. Don't go and don't curse. But you know, if you were to look at verse 13, you'd see uh, something that's interesting and catches the eye, which is Balaam's report back to this delegation. He says, the Lord has refused. Notice he doesn't include in there that the Lord didn't just say you don't go, but he says don't curse. All he reported is the don't go part as if he's sort of leaving the door open for them to think about this just a little bit more. And so he sends a delegation on their merry way. They go back and they visit with Balak. And Balak, we're told, this second time sends a delegation of even more important and impressive dignitaries. And it's as if they walk through the door and they say to Balaam from Balak, I will indeed honor you richly. Please come and curse this people for me. And once again, Balaam did what a, a pious person would do. He, he said he'd go have to see the Lord about it that night. But I want you to notice something he says before he gets there. Balaam responded to the dignitary saying, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I couldn't do anything. Words betray his heart because no one said anything about silver and gold. <laughs> now we're digging into the marrow of the text and the unlikely nature of this prophecy. This man is uh, a guru for hire. He is a religious man who manipulates religious talk and religious language. He sits around reading chicken livers and augurs and divines the future for money. And he makes it very clear to them what it will take for him to go bring this curse upon Israel. And that's all the gold in the hills of Moab. But he does it in such a pious way. I'll have to consult with the Lord. And so he goes and he consults with the Lord. And then we receive something interesting and mysterious because the text says that God gives them some sort of permissive decree. If the men uh, have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. And so that's what makes this so unlikely because here you have a pagan king calling upon a pagan priest or prophet to bring curse on the people of God and God working in his mystery and in his sovereignty says, I'm going to allow you, Balaam, to act upon the sinful, greedy desires of your heart. But guess what, Balaam? You're going to only give a word which I give to you. So all of this is an unlikely vision. It's a word from the Holy Spirit. It is um, a word that um, is about Jesus Christ, and it is a word to a rebellious and stubborn people. It is a word that is contrary to the designs and desires of a pagan king, and it comes from the mouth of a pagan prophet whose heart is full of greed. And everything that you begin to draw in here by way of backdrop and context to, 
to sort of put your shoes, or your feet in the shoes of, of the setting and the situation of the uttering of this uh, prophecy about Christ reminds us this morning that this entire word is a word of mercy. Because God is speaking this word in spite of the designs of the pagan king, in spite of the greedy heart of the pagan prophet, and in spite of the rebellious heart of the people of God. Though they've been faithless and rebellious and stubborn and will continue to be that way, God comes to his people and speaks to them in mercy. He speaks to them a word of blessing. That's a profound insight this morning, people of God, that we tuck away and we lay up in our heart that God is a God of mercy to people who are undeserving. God is a God of grace to those who are rebellious and sinful in heart. And so this morning as we hear this prophecy about Jesus Christ, the, the context for hearing it correctly is knowing who it is whom God speaks to. It's the sinful and the failing and the weak and the disobedient. And what he holds out to them is grace. So that brings us in really to the heart of the prophecy now, which is a messianic vision. We've seen a marvelous vision. Now we see the messianic vision. We get into the marrow of the text and we come into verse 17. Because here, Balaam now speaks of this person whom he sees. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And there's two elements of this prophetic vision of Christ that I want us to lay hold of and think about. And the first is that he is a star that shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter that shall rise from Israel to crush the forehead of Moab. Now it's important for us to season the language of Jacob here. A star that shall come forth from Jacob because it fits so perfectly with prior covenantal revelation. You will remember that when God comes to Abraham and he makes promises to him and he calls him to be a servant, one of the things that he sets before him immediately is not just that he would bless the nations of the earth through him, but that kings would come through his line. And God repeats that same message to Abraham's uh, grandson Jacob. Genesis 35, 11, when God comes to Jacob and blesses him and changes his name to Israel, he says specifically to him, kings shall come forth from you. And so the very form of the prophecy here fits well with prior biblical revelation about the coming of the Messiah because we've known that there wasn't just going to be a seed that would come forth from the woman who would be king, but more narrowly and specifically, that would come through Abraham, then it would come through Jacob. And finally, we remember back into Genesis 49 that when Jacob is leaning on his staff before he dies and he's blessing his children, he says specifically that scepter will come through Judah. But then he says that it'll be a star. All of that is designed to reinforce one thing. This is a vision of a great king. And so we think about this prophecy and we begin to place it within the context of Scripture. And one way we get to the fulfillment of the prophecy, obviously many have gone this route, is, is to think of Matthew 2 too, When uh, the, the Magi from the east come into Jerusalem and they put the question uh, to the King Herod, they say, um, where is he who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. All throughout the history of interpretation, there has been this connection made between the star of Jacob and this star that the Magi speak of, which marked the birth of Jesus Christ. But I tend to think that another and better route into this is to think about the hope of that star which is light. That gets us into thinking about the spiritual import that is promised here of the star that comes out of Jacob, that he will be a savior. See, if you go back into the Old Testament revelation, you go into the Old Testament prophecies, you continue to see this link and association between light and the Messiah. 
One of those texts would be Isaiah chapter 9, which speaks about how the Messiah, this coming promised seed of Abraham, would be a light to those who sit in darkness. And you know, it's, uh, it's Simeon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that begins to gather all of these threads and strands of Scripture together. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he applies it to Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, told the story of Simeon's meeting with Joseph and Mary in the temple. And it wasn't a planned meeting, or at least not on their part. They, they had gone to the temple as the law would have required after purification. And here comes Simeon. The text tells us that his feet were literally directed by the Spirit of God. And what does he see there when he comes into the temple, but he sees uh, Joseph and Mary holding a baby? The Word of God says that he took Jesus up into his arms and he blessed him, saying, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people, Israel. This is all said in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And you know the Latin name of this, right? It's called the Nuke Dimitus. Now release me. Now. And I, I seize on that idea of now because it's the very first word in verse 29. Now. And it links us back to our text, doesn't it? I see him, but not now. I see him. But not now. <clears throat> Simeon, in the direction of the Holy Spirit, is not only guided into the temple to speak words of blessing to the baby Jesus, but he indicates as a preacher to the church, as a prophet to the church, that all of the long-awaited-for expectation and hope of prophecy and covenantal promise is now fulfilled in the most improbable of ways in this baby, this child that's in his arm, and he says about him, I have seen your salvation, light to the Gentiles. You see, what he does is he takes up the promise of the star of Jacob, and he applies it to Jesus Christ, and he says, this is that light. This is the light for those who sit in darkness. It's a most improbable one. It's the Son of God incarnate, a baby born in a manger. And Jesus picks up that language of light and he applies it to himself repeatedly. But how about this one, John 12, 46? I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. You see, Christ himself draws together the strands and the cords and the threads of, of prophecy and all of its hope. He says, this is what it's about. Whoever takes faith and puts it in me will not remain in darkness. See, the star of, of Jacob, this star which would come out of Jacob would be a great king who came bearing salvation in his wings. But it leads us to ask a great question. And it's a perplexing one because given the unmistakable promise and prophecy of Christ, which is held out here to Balaam, who says, I see him, I behold him. It leads us to ask a question. Why in the world did this man not believe him? Think about this. We, we worked our way through this point to set up for this point of application now, how is it that this man who saw him, who had such an unmistakable and overwhelming sense of this vision being from the Spirit of God, know him in this way by revelation and not believe? By the way, we know that Balaam walked away in unbelief because Peter tells us so. He describes Balaam as a false prophet who love the wages of unrighteousness. So how is it somebody that can speak of the coming Christ, this grand and glorious Savior in person, 
by way of oracle, whose eye is open, who hears the words of God, knows the knowledge of the Most High, sees the vision of the Almighty, who has his eyes uncovered, how does he walk away in unbelief? And what makes it all the more interesting and important for us to think about is he was so obviously religious. How does someone who is so obviously religious and well acquainted with the knowledge of the word of God, how does he walk away in unbelief? A man who kept saying when he was proposition to do things I'll just wait on the Lord so evidently an obvious religious how does a person like this who drips with spirituality how does he walk away in unbelief I think it's important for us to acknowledge that happens that people who have all of the religious persona and demeanor you would like who seem to be so full of of a spiritual vibe and sentiment. So openly religious can be so thoroughly hypocritical and unbelieving. It happens. We ask the question why. It seems that the answer is what's located in what he loved. Remember I, I told you that no one offered Balaam all the gold in the hills of Moab it was Balaam who said he wouldn't do it, even if he had all of it. Balaam disclosed exactly what it was that gripped his heart. Balaam made it very clear what it was that he worshipped and he loved. He loved money. Jesus warns about this. He says, the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus is warning about people who are religious. Jesus is warning about people who come into contact with the word. Jesus is warning about people who express reverence for the word of God and religious things. And he says, you have to watch out. Because even in the case of such people, hypocrisy looms in the heart in the form of a love of money and the deceitfulness of riches. Why do people see Christ and walk away in unbelief? Even though they profess to be religious. And Jesus says one reason is on account of what they love. He makes it very clear. You cannot serve God in money. How do you test that this morning? How do you test that this morning? How does someone evaluate whether they're in the grip of the deceit of riches? Not a bad question to ask. How does one know? If they're in the deceit of riches. And it seems to me that one way we can know whether we're in the grip of the deceit of riches is how we give. Our heart is connected to our wallet. Our heart is connected to our wallet. You see, a person who professes all the right things about Christ and says they've looked upon the star which comes forth from Jacob and they are the recipients of the light even as they sat in the darkness and the mire of their sin and doesn't lift a finger to give to Christ and to his church. Someone who just might be in the grip of the deceit of riches. See, the New Testament, instead of running around giving a dollar amount, says, give as you've been blessed. It continually connects it to the gospel. It continually connects it to our experience of Christ. This is an indicator of whether I'm appreciative of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. An indicator of whether I am thankful for the mercies which have been poured out upon me through the cross of Christ is do I give? The reason it does that is because it takes faith to give. It takes selflessness to give. It's costly to give. 
You think about it this morning, all that you could have if you didn't. It'll cost you a new car. It might cost you a better house. It could cost you better clothes. A more extravagant vacation. It can cost you quite a bit, especially in our culture. If you take at least 10% of your paycheck and you bring it to the church because you say, I want to show gratitude and thanks for heaven's mercies because I, am, I have a passion for extending the kingdom of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, it will cost you. But you see, that is what Christ uses to evaluate whether we are in the, the grip of the deceit of riches is but we separate our cash from our wallet to show that we've been touched by the power of the gospel and are thankful for heaven's mercies. The arrival of the star of Jacob calls us to exercise faith and then to return thanks with gifts of gratitude. We see the star out of Jacob. We see now a king's conquest and this is where our text uh, begins to step into an area which, uh, well, it's um, quite confrontational. Notice the kingly image, first of all, in verse 17. A scepter shall arise from Israel. That could be uh, anything from um, a symbol or staff, which uh, served as insignia for a local tribe, to the symbol of a king's rule or the actual uh, presentation of a king. And I, I think here that's obviously what is in view. It speaks here of a scepter that shall arise from Israel. More specifically, as we've heard, it, it's the scepter, the king that would come uh, from the line of Judah. Jacob said very specifically to Judah that um, the, the scepter staff wouldn't depart from the line of Judah until Shiloh comes. And so it's a very clear prophecy uh, 2,000 years in advance that Christ would come through Judah. And now he speaks of it here. He speaks of a scepter that shall arise from Israel. But uh, he doesn't just speak of a king. He speaks of a kingly conquest. Notice the completion of the phrase here. And he shall crush through the forehead of Moab. This is a violent image. The images of that of bludgeoning somebody so powerfully overhead it splits their skull open and their brains gush out. It's not a domesticated image. He'll crush the forehead of Moab and you begin to repeat that language in your mind and you say, I think I have heard about this crushing before. And that's another thing that makes this prophecy so marvelous because of the threads and the strands of biblical revelation that it pulls together. Because it doesn't just speak of a star from out of Jacob or a scepter that comes from Israel reaching back to Genesis 49, reaching back to Genesis 35, reaching back to the promise of Abraham. It takes us all the way back to the gates of Eden to Genesis 3.15 where God fixed the hope of a feeble and fallen and sinful Adam and Eve upon what? A seed who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. And now here, thousands of years later, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, a pagan prophet draws together the strands of biblical revelation and fixes our attention Upon who is the one who will crush that seed of Satan? And it's Christ. It's this individual person. It's this him who I see but not now. Who I behold who is not near. You see, uh, when Balaam speaks here of this one crushing the head of Moab, he is using or describing the enemies of Christ under the language of the contemporary enemies of Israel, but it's certainly designed to be lifted up on a higher plane to speak of the enemies of Christ and his kingdom. And you know, uh, this uh, language, again, is picked up by that 
elderly man named Simeon, who'd been waiting his whole life, it seemed, for the fulfillment of all of these prophetic hopes and covenantal promises. And as he finished speaking the benediction over Jesus Christ, he, oh, he, he went on to say something else which is fairly staggering as he turned to Mary now. And he said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. I've long called this, uh, this uh, particular set of the promises here, these prophetic words, the, the dark side of Christmas. You don't ever find this uh, printed in holiday cards, do you? This Christ is for the, for the falling the destruction, the conquest, the smashing of the foreheads. <clears throat> but that's exactly what Simeon speaks of here, of a great king that Balaam spoke of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who bore a double-edged sword, one of blessing and one of conquest. Yeah, this king would be for blessing for sure. He would be for the rising of those who would believe. For every single person who heard the proclamation of the gospel, who knew the knowledge of their sin and the amount of their guilt and their fallenness before God and their being made liable and subject to the wrath of God and humbled themselves before Christ and repented of their sin and would cling to Christ by faith, this would be for the rise. Because God in his grace would lift them up in mercy. He would bestow upon them what they didn't deserve. But the opposite side is reflected 1,500 years beforehand as well. The double-edged part of the sword, the edge of judgment. He has been appointed, Simeon says, under the direction of the Holy Spirit for the foe. For those who refuse to believe. For those who are the opponents of the kingdom of Christ, for those whose heart is full of pride, for those who reject the gospel, for those who stand in opposition to it. He comes with a sharp sword in vengeance. The apostle puts it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, that Christ will come to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. You see how convenient it is to speak of the nice stuff and forget and leave out this stuff. But this is at the heart of the message. It's not just a star rising from Jacob, but it's a king that comes forth from Israel who's armed with a sword to smash the forehead of Moab and the opposition to Christ and the gospel truth in the kingdom of God. The Christ which Balaam holds out is majestic. He's majestic. He's a king clothed in saving mercy. And he's a king armed with a sword. This isn't Christmas Carol Jesus, is it? Meek and mild laying in a manger, cuddled in swaddling clothes on Mary's lap, somehow not even letting out a whimper when the cows moo. This is a glorious king whose origins are from everlasting. And I have to say, one of the things that I resent most about the church's participation in the celebration of Christmas with the world is how it so often reduces it to syrupy emotionalism and sentimentalism that doesn't match the scriptures. It's a false presentation of Christ. It's a misrepresentation of Christ to the world to just bring in the good parts and to leave out all the bad stuff. Because you see, it's exactly the stuff of Christ bearing the sword. It's exactly Christ being the scepter that emerges from Israel. It is exactly the Christ who comes forward to smash the heads of his enemies that is integral to the message of the preaching of the word because it's that which leads people to fear him. And ours is a day that's easy to be manipulated by emotion. Ours is an age of sentimentalism. 
I am sick beyond nausea of hearing about how good everybody is, especially at this time of the year. The Bible says there's not good. There's not one that's good. It's very easy to agree with the syrupy and emotional Jesus. But you see, the message which reinforces the gospel message is that he bears a sharp sword. It's as Simeon said to Mary, he will pierce right through to your own heart to disclose its thoughts and intents and lay them bare. You see, it's only when we come before the authority of Christ and his majesty and glory and his kingship. We come to the knowledge of our sin and we're humbled. We're humbled by the power of God and his wrath. And our hearts are brought low. And that we're ready to agree with the call of the gospel, which is to repent and to believe. It's both the majesty and the glory of Christ, which Balaam speaks of here, as he holds Christ forth in blessing to a generation of rebels. And he urges them to lay hold of that star from Jacob by faith, lest they too have their foreheads smashed like Moab of the fierce wrath and power of this king. And so this morning as we look upon the Christ of Balaam's oracle, may we fear him. May we fear him and love him, this great king of kings and, and lord of lords who brings forth salvation in his might in order that we may be humbled for his majesty and that we come to trust him sincerely for his saving mercies. Father, we thank you for an image of a great king, not just set forth in prophecy, but now one who has come, who we see in the fullness of the outlines of scripture. And we praise you and thank you for salvation. It's been made ours, not by our works, but by the mercy of God in Christ. Lord, help us to rid our minds of false and erroneous notions about Jesus. Help us, Lord, to take from the word of God, the pure word of God, the truth about him. May that govern our hearts and minds and dispositions. And may we learn to give thanks to him for all that he is, but especially our Savior and our King. We lift him up and we proclaim him. And we pray that as he is proclaimed in his truth, it will be unto salvation and reinforcement and sanctification for your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.